Thank you for that sweet, beautiful, and simple message. This is where our hope is. Things don't turn out right. Sometimes we don't turn out right. But we come back to Jesus who loves us, and he's going to make it turn out right. Us and circumstances in time. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for a beautiful Sabbath. Hope, togetherness, forgiveness, creation, a future. They're all gifts from you, Lord, in the midst of strain and stress and tumult. So now, Lord, I pray, do with this message as you would. Liberate us as your people. Give us wisdom and strength to be discerners of the days. And now, Lord, may your spirit be here to teach as we open the word. We humble ourselves before you in Jesus' name. Amen. I entitled my message this morning, Digital, the Digital Inebriate, Church, Society, and Salvation. Now, obviously, for those of you that uh, have attended here for a while or watched online, I'm going to touch on perhaps one of the greatest challenges to the Christian experience and to the civilness of civil society uh, that has existed and only grows in power exponentially year by year. Uh, this week was a momentous week. Let's be praying for our new president. Let's be praying for discernment in the midst of our own hearts, homes, lives, and church. On Tuesday before the inauguration, I was listening to National Public Radio, and I heard an interview with Tristan Harris. Now, some of you are familiar with who this man is. He used to work as an ethicist for Google. He stepped away from that, and he has made himself an announcer of the less noble sides of the digital media spectrum, of social media especially. This was on the indicator from Planet Money, interviewed by Stacey Vanek-Smith, and I was intrigued by a number of the things he shared. Now, I know nothing about his political uh, arrangement with society, and I will say this at the beginning of this message. I'm quite convinced that politics is the new religion for many Americans, and I don't think as a Seventh-day Adventist you're exempt. And many people are interpreting what's said through the lens of politics before they interpret it as whether it's right or wrong. So I'm inviting you this morning to come back to being Adventist. What is to be a Seventh-day Adventist? When Joseph Bates went to Battle Creek and he wanted to spread the message, he asked who the most honest man in town is. I think God is still looking for the honest men and women who ask, is it true? And if it's true, how does it affect me? If we could step back from uh, canceling people by way of what we believe their perspective to be and actually wrestle with the truth, I assure you that in any message, there is probably something for you. The spirit of prophecy affirms this. It could be the most boring monologue you've listened to. But if you come ready to hear something, God will make sure you get to hear it. So this morning, I want to go on a journey. And I want to talk about digital inebriation. Now, we don't talk about inebriation very much. It's another word for drunkenness. But I'm here to affirm this morning that if we're not discerners of our times and we partake of the spirit of the world, we shall find ourselves without the clear thinking sobriety we need to walk the narrow way, live with peace, confidence, and hope. For indeed, this is God's, uh, in, is this God's destiny for us. On Tuesday, 
Stacey Vanek Smith was interviewing Tristan Harris. It was a discussion of social media and the part it played in the attack on the Capitol. He says, the attack is what I saw as a 10-year culminating process. This entire business model profited from giving us a more certain view of reality. To which the host replies in some measure, well, I pick my friends, I pick my content, I pick what's shared. And Tristan Harris reminds us that behind these social media platforms are the most powerful supercomputers in the world, and they're asking basically one question, and here it is, what can I show you? Now, he didn't say the rest, so I'll say it for you. What can I show you that will keep your attention right here because we're living in an attention economy and get you to click to one more thing? Because you see, what you need to understand is that some of these outlets are not really about news, although they are about information. And what they're doing is a constant confirmation bias because they're making money the longer you stay and the more they can show to those who want to advertise on them that they got this many clicks and they kept your attention for this long. Now this morning, let it be completely understood. When this message is over, if everyone goes out of here just a little bit agitated at something that was said, probably I did what I was hoping to do, which is to make sure that if you're on the left or you're on the right, you all have something to think about how to be on the path of life. The truth of the matter is, is that we have seen in this world a constant polarization, and it's not an accident. It has happened because when you go to Facebook, or you go to Google, or you go to Twitter, as long as you keep paying attention, things will pop up that will deepen your attention and what you want to pay attention to. Confirmation bias and selling information is what they're all about. And if you don't understand that, you're missing out on a key piece of disinformation in an age of supposed enlightenment. When Jack Dorsey was on his island and he had to make his decision about whether to delist former President Trump from Twitter, he said, this is a bad precedent. And Zuckerberg and Dorsey, according to Tristan Harris, both say they shouldn't have this much power. Then he gave an illustration, which I'll skip for, for time. But he says, this is now the central information infrastructure that governs our democracy. And beyond the question of governments, governance is the system itself compatible with democracy, at least a democracy that works. We have a system, he states, that produces a kind of cultural cancer. And he identifies at least four symptoms of that cancer. It shortens attention spans. It creates more addiction, more polarization, and more outrage. The host lasts just a little bit. It does seem a little tricky to create regulation around this. Why not just let these companies make money as they will and let these conversations happen as they will? And Tristan interjects, because we won't survive as a civilization. Now you say, oh, pastor, you're falling in to uh, some of the lines of, of the left. If I fall into some of the lines of the left sometimes and I fall into the lines of the right sometimes, more power to me because I believe balance is important. Now, it just so happens over the last week or month, there are moments when I've been carrying buckets sometimes full of heavy things. Do you know the easiest way to carry a heavy bucket in this hand is to have a heavy bucket in this hand. 
Some of you are familiar with working with your hands, and you understand the componentry of balance. This is clearly, he states, a moment we cannot survive as a civilization and as a democracy. We've already infected ourselves with a kind of divisive malware where our minds are not able to agree with each other, even if you subtract social media right now. We are clearly seeing such different understandings of reality, and we're not really interested in abandoning our own perspectives. To which the host again feels a little sense of, well, what's different than before? And he clarifies, we've never had supercomputers pointed at our brain, perfectly able to simulate our emotions and know more about us, powerful sentence, than we know about ourselves. It knows that, and he hesitates, that resonant frequency, that minor seventh of which anger to put into your nervous system next because it's literally playing chess against three trillion calculations of which one will do the best job of that. And we're almost to the end here. Last two sentences. It's checkmate against the human nervous system because it's seen more patterns, that is about you, of which emotions and which kinds of texts will tend to produce the results that it wants for its business model. And let us not forget, friends, it is a business. And last sentence again, this is possible to escape, but only if we collectively recognize that it is a completely unsustainable, unsurvivable situation if we don't fundamentally change this business model. Now, if I didn't agree, I wouldn't be sharing it. I'm watching people move left and right who have no real interest in hearing anything from this side or that. I had a two-hour conversation this last week with someone who came to the conversation with certainly somewhat of a different perspective than me. The truth of the matter was, was that there were things he needed to say I needed to hear. And I think in reverse as well. And when the discussion was all done, I think we both went out of the room, benefited by following one of those simple little uh, axioms of Scripture. And that is, sit down and talk to each other. Leviticus 19.18, don't harbor a grudge in your heart, but speak frankly with your brother and love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, those words are all together, almost quoted verbatim. When we allow ourselves to live in echo chambers and silos of affirmation, which Zuckerberg will say is what we're getting, we're getting affirmation, not so much, I should say Harris, information, the fact of the matter is, is it becomes easier and easier to go farther and farther away from each other. And while there are cultural cornerstones that would appear to have no compromise, and for certainly some, there will be none, but at the ability of us to listen to each other and talk to each other, in the church's case, pray for each other. Here's an article, Biases Make People Vulnerable to Misinformation Spread by Social Media. It's a fact, friends. It wasn't made up. Tristan Harris, what, this article would be interesting to read from a TED Radio Hour. What is the cost of infinite distractions? Think about it. And another one by Harris, How Tech Hijacks Our Brain, Corrupts Our Culture, and What to Do Now. So in reflecting on this, I have to ask myself this question. What is the church's role, and how self-aware are we in this area of social or digital inebriation? I watched an interesting video in preparation for this moment here. It's put out by the Southern Poverty Law Center, so you have a point of reference. 
If they lean left, take it into consideration. If they lean right, take it into consideration. I can tell you what's happening in your life just by talking with you for a few minutes. Because if all you're ever getting is news from the things that come up in your Facebook feed, they just keep taking you farther into what you already believed. Because that's how they make money. But if you actually have enough objectivity and critical thinking without a critical spirit, you can actually pay attention to what's going on and start understanding that the controversy is deepening and the chasm is widening. Unity is evaporating from the face of the planet, even basic cooperation. That five-minute video would be an interesting one for all to watch. I highly recommend it. It's called The Miseducation of Dylan Roof. Now, some of you remember who Dylan Roof was. Many of us probably doesn't draw to mind any real idea. So let me remind you, because we've gotten to a place where there's a litany of these things that have gone on, and we forget who the players are. But Dylan Roof, when you watch the video, is a little boy, and the pictures are just so sweet. He looks like anybody else's little boy who grows to be an innocent preteen. And then all of a sudden, Dylan Roof is, is radicalized. And he becomes so radical that someday he can walk into a church with nine African-Americans, a historic church, he can walk into it, nine people praying. He doesn't know them from Adam. And he can kill every single one of them. How does it happen? It happens through disinformation. Yes, the education of, or miseducation of Dylan Roof, worth looking about, worth familiarizing ourselves with. This morning, I want to talk with you about the difference between the spirit of the world and the spirit of truth. Take your Bibles and open them up to the book of John. John chapter 16. Probably no book talks more and no author in the Bible talks more about truth and the spirit of truth than the gospel writer John. 16. Looking at verse 13. John 16. It's a promise. Reading from the New American Standard, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. So there's a promise of the Spirit of truth. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'm going to take this scripture and I'm going to broaden its understanding, not that I can broaden its original intent, but the application, at least, I would like to broaden to a 21st century application. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the man of lawlessness. Now, we understand this to be the fulfillment of a religious system that masquerades as God, but is really an extreme contradiction to the most basic teachings of the Scriptures, including the Ten Commandments. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, I'm going to pause right there, because the man of iniquity is yet to be revealed in a much fuller measure than what that mystery of lawlessness is already manifesting. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, 
whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So those two verses take you from the moment of the writer and the writing to the very end, verses 7 and 8. There is a mystery of lawlessness that's already at work, and there will be a destruction of the lawless one when Jesus comes. Verse 9, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan and all the powers and the signs of false wonders. And with all the deception, notice the word, deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive a love of the truth, so to be saved. Now, I'm getting down to the Spirit. There's something about loving truth that makes you able to see truth, and there's something about not loving truth that blinds you. Verse 11, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So the question that one would have to ask on a a cursory reading of this statement is, is God out to destroy people by tricking them? Or is this simply a commentary on how people destroy themselves by not loving the truth and by focusing on what they want to focus on? Now I want you to think about the scribes and the Pharisees for a moment. Did this not happen to them? Were they not so fixated on what they wanted to see that the spirit of the cross of sacrifice and service was gone from their view of religion? And all that they could find are the repeating storylines of power and prestige. So much so to where God, the author and originator of truth, could show up in their presence with the strongest proofs. Think Lazarus. Think the widow of Nain's son. Think lepers made clean. Think bread multiplied. Think seas calm. Think blind people seeing, deaf people hearing. Think. And they will resist him all the way to the very end because he does not fit their confirmation bias. I want to challenge everyone listening to me here this morning. Are you an Adventist on the David Hewitt level of Adventism, or have you morphed yourself into left-leaning, right-leaning, somewhere other than leaning only on Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life? I'm here before you because the gospel message cannot be tainted with the new religion. The new religion of he who has might has power, and might is at the ballot box, and whatever that turns out to be is who the winners of the latest battle in the political great controversy happens to be. We are called as Christians to rise above this, not be sucked in to a checkmate position where three trillion options are being considered by a supercomputer of which one will make us more imbalanced of where we might already be. Now, I've not defined imbalance for any of you. That's for you to think about. But I'm going to show you in this message how to make sure you're not in a confirmation bias echo chamber silo mode that keeps you from being a vibrant, fruitful, powerful Christian witness. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're in 2 Thessalonians, you're not far away. Digital inebriation. We think of our lives as needing to revolve around our devices, and in some measure, they do. But this morning, what I want to talk with you about, and before I'm all said and done, I'm going to be inviting you to a self-chosen fast of some measure 
to stop and make sure that the spirit of truth is behind the truth you espouse so that if something about the truth you espouse isn't exactly right, the spirit of truth can lead you to a greater understanding of truth. 1 Peter chapter 5, this is what it says, beginning with verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant. The New American Standard says, be of a sober spirit, be on the alert. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, this three words could summarize my message but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accompanied by your brethren who are in the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of grace will call you to his eternal glory in Christ. He himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And you couldn't help but follow with verse 11, to him be dominion forever. Amen. Now listen. The spirit of truth versus the spirit of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That spirit of lawlessness was at work in Paul's day. The spirit of truth, you can't get too far away from it here in John's writing because you realize if you have the spirit of truth, you're going to do something. You're going to end up doing a little bit of suffering. The spirit of the world versus the spirit of truth. When you're with the world, very little suffering is a part of the first chapters of the story. That comes at the end when you've got to face judgment. If you're in the world, the world will leave you alone. As a matter of fact, the world will affirm you. It can happen in your Seventh-day Adventist home. You can be affirming the world in your Seventh-day Adventist home. You can be doing it in your Seventh-day Adventist business. But the spirit of truth creates opposition. Now, we're not to be oppositional by nature, and we're not to be difficult to get along with, but like in the interview at Sabbath school, which if you didn't see, I encourage you to go back and watch it. When the beauty of Christ is in our hearts, and we politely, respectfully stand up for what we are and who we're called to be, it's going to do something for those who want to be of God's kingdom, it's going to do something good. For those who have no interest in that and want it away, it's going to arouse something bad. But if you think the spirit of truth is somehow going to shield you from the sufferings that come with truth, you better think again. The spirit of truth will call you to a buffering experience with the world in which God himself will shield you appropriately but not completely based on what he believes you need for the hewing, polishing, and fitting of your living stone into the edifice of his house, his church of faith. Be sober. Pay attention to what's going on. Critical thinking without critical spirits. Turn over to the book of Proverbs chapter 6. I want to show you also how the spirit of truth differentiates itself from the spirit of the world. Proverbs chapter 6 Our supposedly Christian nation is tottering and teetering in the absence of Christian culture. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23. The commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. So if you're with people who never disagree with you, 
you're not probably on the most balanced path of upward progress. If all you listen to on the radio, and by the way, probably the radio is one of the better places still to get your news because you can know when you're listening to NPR, it's very left-leaning, and you can know when you're listening to 95.3, it's very right-leaning, at least everything coming out, you know where it's coming from. But when you're getting your news off Facebook, whether it's about whether you should, how you should relate to a public health crisis or the government or politics, everything you're doing on those platforms, there's three trillion choices that the supercomputer is waiting to feed you so that you'll stay on their site or one that they're advertising for. In other words, what I'm saying to you is you ought to make sure you come to the knowledge of what you're receiving as information with the idea it might be slightly wrong. In other words, it could be truth mixed with error, a form of disinformation which is particularly dangerous and deadly. Turn back to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the spirit of the world. Paul had to deal with it. And it was not a very easy introduction to write to the Corinthian church. He's worried about this letter he's sending. Why? Because he's got to deal with some of the same things we're dealing with. Well, I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Paul. Jesus says, how about being of Jesus? That would be better, wouldn't it? This idea of personifying and identifying with a significant person in a movement is a mistake. And when we start identifying ourselves with personages of the world, we are actually eclipsing the ability to represent the personage of heaven, our Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. I'm not going to take the time to look at many of the things that come before it. Actually, I'm going to take a little bit. Verse 2, 1 Corinthians 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power. In other words, gospel messaging and parental messaging and heavenly messaging all have a componentry that recognizes the deceitful messaging of this world and goes straight up against it, and everybody gets to decide. Praise God. You're living in a free society still. You can listen to anything you want and make your decision. But would you dare make it without God? Would you dare make it without the spirit of humility and wisdom? Would you dare make it to where it could never be challenged? Or if it's challenged, it irritates and upsets you. Some things are worthy of strong emotion. Some perhaps not. But what I want you to see is that the messaging, and if you've read the book of 1 Corinthians, you understand there is no more powerful prophetic messaging in all the New Testament except Christ himself up against anybody that was against his father. But in the New Testament, there is no book more painful to write or to listen to if you're the recipient than the book of 1 Corinthians. He just hits one problem after another, the most dysfunctional group of people in the whole New Testament. Go down to verse 12 now. Let's make sure we get it right. Now we've not received, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. You see, discipline and rebuke is the way of life. The road is narrow. 
Contrary concepts ought to be engaged so that we ought not to let strengths morph into weaknesses. I want you to hear what I'm saying. Whatever strength you have, uncontested in a marriage, will turn out to be the demise of the quality of the marriage. So you're a compassionate person. That's wonderful. But compassion unchecked with justice leads to a dysfunctional enabling of somebody somewhere. Woe be it if it's your child. Same with church leadership. Same with school leadership. There is a balancing element to a mutually submitted group of people that in humility and sincerity listens and prays and talks through. Life is not always quite as simple as we would like it to be. Take your Bibles and turn over one page to chapter 3, verse 1. Paul's not letting up. I, brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. You're not even converted. Strong language, certainly spiritual abuse in the modern century's definition of things. And yet, it is what he says. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you're not yet able to receive it. An implied rebuke for failing to grow. Paul does not subscribe to the modern esteemism movement, although he subscribes deeply to the love of God. And he holds people up at the same time he challenges them and exhorts them to walk above what the rest of the world is swimming in. Take your Bible and turn over to the little book of 1 John. 1 John. Looking at chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Find Revelation and go backwards just a few places. 1 John, verses 4, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits. Now, I've not looked into the Greek in this, this uh, verse here, but I don't think I need to. And I don't think you need to either, because while the Greek will render sometimes a richer understanding, it rarely undoes the plain statement of the vernacular of the people. Test the spirits. Listen. When you're listening to somebody, you ought to be taking grade of what spirit nerves them. Because if it's of the world, and it's base, and it's proud, and it's self-inflated... It might be that every other thing you hear is corrupted by the channel it's flowing through. Let the wise hear what I'm saying. Especially the religiously conservative wise. Reading onward. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You're saying, well, pastor, it's all about theological talk. No, it's not. It's about whether or not a Christ-like or Christocentric paradigm is in the sourcing of your information. If it's not, it's corrupted. You better have your, your glasses on to discern where the corruption's coming from. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard that's coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you've overcome them because greater is he that's in you than he who is in the world. Amen. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Who knows, he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God 
does not listen to us. And you could say, egocentric theological statement thrown out there, no way to contradict him. Well, I want to tell you, the apostles don't bat an eye in exercising the authority of their spiritual resume to say, we've been entrusted to get this thing going, and if you don't listen to us, you're on the wrong side. Is he full of himself, or is he full of the Spirit, written down for you and me? By this we know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. The pride that is in this current generation is such that nobody's to touch the venerated ideas and opinions of people. But I want to assure you, as Gideon tore down his father's idol, there are things that will have to be at least remade in some fashion, if not torn down, that are ensconced in the halls of what we believe to be so very important. Now, I want to go and look carefully at where I believe we are as a society. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. I would suggest to you this morning that we are back at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all over again. And it is actually a sign and an indicator that Jesus is about to come. The methodology of Lucifer is loose and rampant today. And because of that, I believe it won't be long until God intervenes to do something for his people. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, which happens to be this one, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you'll die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was de delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, very quickly, I'm going to take advantage of what I'll call the inspired commentary of patriarchs and prophets. And I'm going to show you that where they were in that moment is where we are collectively as a society and maybe even a church right now. Number one, they were given a warning. Our first parents, writing in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 53, were not left without a warning of the danger that threatened them. Heavenly messengers opened to them the history. Okay, you can read it in Revelation 12, 12 but the angels told it to them. The history of Satan's fall and his plots for their destruction, unfolding more fully the nature of the divine government, which the prince of evil was trying to overthrow. The angels warned them to be on their guard against the devices. Hmm, I'm sure she didn't mean what that word means now. But the devices of Satan for his efforts to ensnare them would be unwearied. Now listen, when you have a parent that loves you enough or a pastor or a teacher or a friend or a spouse to give you a warning, that's a gospel message if it's a true warning. And the very first gospel message in the Bible is a warning. Stay away from the tree. Don't eat the food. Don't engage with him. It was a gospel warning. The second thing that I want to rejoice in about this moment in earth's history then and now is that there is security for us and there's limitations of power. 
Satan could not fly around following them in the garden. They had to go to the tree. God gave them security. If they steadfastly repelled his first insinuations from the same page, they would be as secure as the heavenly messengers. Satan had already been excised from heaven while he was plying his arts on earth. They would be as secure as the people who didn't have to live with him anymore. But should they once yield to temptation, their nature would become so depraved that in themselves they would have no power and worse yet, no disposition to resist Satan. So good news was, as long as you stayed away from the tree, you had a measure of security. Bad news was, she found herself at the tree. Which leads me to the next important point. She was all by herself. Proverbs 18.1, he who isolates himself rages against all sound wisdom. We have people that are isolating themselves from ideas contradictory. But I'll tell you what, when as a church family, we actually rub shoulders with each other and do some affection, proper Christian affection and bonding, we actually make friends with people who don't see it exactly the way we see it. And I want to tell you, not Having a friend to help you with a larger perspective is a huge, colossal loss, both of perspective and also personal freedom and integrity. There is something about being challenged in your idea that makes you examine it. Together, we are much better off than alone. The truth of the matter is, if you dig your heels in and you won't move, then you will be left behind. Pride of opinion. This is an important thing in the 21st century. We have ensconced in postmodern thought the idea that nobody has to be wrong. Well, I want to tell you something. You don't have to be very smart to see there's good and bad in the world. You don't have to be very smart to see there's evil and there's righteousness. One is worth listening to, one is not. Every idea is not okay. Some lead to evil, even though you can't see where it's going right in the beginning. That's the way that looks like it's okay that leads to death. And some look like they don't go to life, although they give immediate peace in the heart of the one who follows on to those principles of life. When we think about this pride of opinion, it was in her heart, or developed at some level, I should say. On perceiving that she was alone, she felt an apprehension of danger, patriarchs and prophets. But she dismissed her fears, deciding that she had sufficient wisdom and strength to discern evil and to withstand it. Thank you. The postmodern Eve is at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only thing is, there's a supercomputer up against you who has which has algorithms to follow every click you make. And some believe, and I don't know if it's true or not, everywhere your eyes look on the screen. And some believe, and I have no reason to suggest it not to be, listen to every word you say. I know the other day, I had my iPhone, and I was mumbling something as I bent over at the bottom of my bed by where my tie rack is, and the phone said, sorry, I didn't understand that. And it's like, I don't care, I wasn't talking to you. Actually, I do care, and I'm not talking to you. I got this. Mom, Dad, you don't know. I'm a digital native. Woe be unto you if you're a digital native. If ever there was a day you want a digital immigrant in your life, 
called mom, dad, or grandma, grandpa. It's today. Oh, you're savvy on the internet, but you're not savvier than the computer and the evil designs behind it to put you in checkmate to your own desires. Oh, yes, Eve was up against more than the supercomputers that are running Google and Facebook and Twitter and all these other places. I got this. Unmindful, Ellen White writes, of the angel's caution, she soon found herself gazing with unmingled curiosity, with mingled curiosity and admiration upon the forbidden tree. Wow, up close, it's more beautiful than I thought. Wow, all that fruit. Wow, look at that serpent. Wow, the serpent talks. But there were some grave disadvantages. As if he were able to discern the workings of her mind, he addressed her. So make sure you don't miss this. Eve thought the serpent knew what she was thinking. I'm here to tell you, the people following your online movements might be more objectively accurate about you than you are about you. And they might, at the right moment, be able to move your thoughts to the next logical place they should go. As if he were able to discern the workings of her mind, he addressed her, Yea, hath God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Eve was surprised and startled as she thus seemed to hear the echo of her own thoughts. But the data was all working against Eve. The serpent continued in a musical voice with subtle praise of her surpassing loveliness. How many of these can I get? How many people are following me here, following me there? I can be my own publicist, and I don't need to spend a lot of money. A lot of time, yes. A lot of money, no. His words were not displeasing. What would God have said? What would Adam have said if he happened to look over his shoulder and see her standing at the base of the tree? Might he have come up to her and said, what are you doing here? Would that have been pleasing? Since when do we get to the place where we think our words have to be pleasing? It's the spirit of the world sometimes, not always. I want our words to be pleasing. The Bible says that the mouth of the righteous is like a tree of life. Pass out genuine affirmation, genuine encouragement, genuine care. It's not that we're supposed to be unpleasing, but there are some situations. As little Johnny heads towards the four-lane highway at the end of your driveway, are your words pleasing? I can remember once living by Route 31 down in Carmel, Indiana. In Indiana, it's Carmel, not Carmel. All I had was a dog at that point in time. And it was only a few hundred feet from our apartment down to the base of the road. You can't, the driveway doesn't even exist anymore. And I can remember how animated I was just trying to save my dog from running out in the road. Ignorance. It's a terrible word. She had no thought that the fascinating serpent could be the medium 
for the fallen foe. She didn't know she was talking to the devil. There's a woman out in California. She was at our North American Division educational meetings in Chicago a few years back. And she did a, a seminar on pedophiles and predators. I want to tell you, she told the story of a girl who got on the internet. Dad became aware of it. Some guy on the other end of the internet paying attention to this teenage girl. She thinks it's just another teenage boy. Dad gets rid of the computer. One night, with no computer in the room, he hears a noise. He gets up only to see an open window, and his daughter is gone. He doesn't bother to fully dress himself, so you can see a middle-aged man running down the road in his underclothes, and he's headed for that car down at the corner where he sees his daughter heading with real determination. He gets to the car before it can speed away. When he puts his hand on the handle and opens the door, it's a middle-aged man. He grabs the man by the shirt, and while I'm not here to suggest the methodology is in every way correct, I think the man who's grabbing is a Texan. He grabs the man by the shirt, pulls him out of his car, and lays him flat. So you thought that was just some nice guy from somewhere around the block. The lady is an expert in the predatory movements of people online. For all the young people listening to me here today, if there is a day to listen to your parents, it is today. And when they draw some strong lines around your freedom, joy, innocency, Honoring your father and mother has never meant more for a happy, bright future and a wonderful life than it means today. But whether they honor you or not, mom and dad, it is your job. She was ignorant. And I suspect that many of us don't believe the dark and unseemly intents of those who want our money and get it by selling our information could go. She was working with the worst of all lies because it was somewhat true and it was somewhat false. Would she acquire some greater knowledge with the eating of the fruit? Surely she would. Would there be a broader field of understanding? Yes, there would be. But would she really be like God in the way that he meant it when she heard it? Absolutely not. In the judgment, Ellen White writes, men will not be condemned because they conscientiously believed a lie, but because they did not believe the truth, because they neglected the opportunity of learning what is truth. This is good news. It's only bad news if you're wasting your time and wasting your life, failing to put in place the bulwarks of honest, true, serious, sober thinking. More data wasn't going to do any good. It was only going to damn her. What did the devil do? He takes a piece, drops it in her hand, according to patriarchs and prophets, and says, look, you're not dying. 
I want to tell you, friends, life driven by data is moving with the masses on the superhighway of self-destruction if the data is not matched up with inspiration. God is out of our culture in so many ways. Slime and accidents and happenstance are the result of these amazing things, but like Kevin said, when's the last time a hurricane blew through a junkyard talking pilot to pilot in a 747? It's what came out on the other side. We are in a situation where more data is only deepening our confirmation bias. So what happens when she meets up with Adam? An expression of sadness comes over his face. He appeared astonished and alarmed. To the words of Eve, he replied, this must be the foe against whom they'd been warmed. And by the divine sentence, she must die. And what's her answer? She urges him to eat, repeating the words of the serpent that they should not die. And she reasoned that it has to be true because she at that point in time felt no evidence of God's displeasure. But on the contrary, she realized a delicious, exhilarating influence thrilling every faculty with new life, such she imagined as inspired by the heavenly messengers. After all, he reasoned, might not the words of the wise serpent be true? Eve was before him as beautiful and apparently as innocent as before this act of disobedience. And this is a line that got me. I don't know if you remember reading this one. She expressed greater love for him than ever before. Think about that, teenager. The next time that boyfriend or that girlfriend's pressing you to do something you know you shouldn't do, be where you shouldn't be, think what you shouldn't think. It's as old as the first temptation. No sign of death appeared in her, and he quickly decided to brave the consequences, and he seized the fruit, and he ate it, and that led to the last act that we see right now going around our tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They both flattered themselves that he who had given them so many evidences of his love would now pardon this one transgression, and they would not be subject to so dire punishment as they had feared. False grace. He did pardon them. Can you say Amen. And he pardons you and me. Have you been around somebody that's stuck on a substance? What makes you an alcoholic? Is it when you have to drink before you eat breakfast? Is it only when you're zigging and zagging down the road? Somebody told me recently that by the time the police catch you, you've probably had nine or ten occurrences of endangering people's lives on the road. God loves you if you're struggling with drinking today. He can help you, but obviously that's not the point of this message. This message has a point much less pleasing, and that is God loves you if you're struggling with confirmation bias, wrong attachment to your devices, pornography, or whatever other element of your person is being wrongly exaggerated and exacerbated through the freedom of access to supposedly the world's library, which is often nothing more than a deep dive into the world's cesspool. 
And this this morning, at the end of this message, I'm asking every single person, if you're a parent, why would you put one of these devices prematurely in the hands of your kids, no matter how many firewalls you can put up? Do you really want societal checkmate on the mind of your innocent child? Or would you rather have them think you're an old fogey in the fast lane, but when they get to be 25, say, Mom and Dad, thank you for giving me that kind of childhood. I get messages from people regularly who have stuck with what we would call a wisdom of the ages enhanced by the grace of the word approach to parenting where their kids say, thank you for helping me to grow up to be a successful functioning adult with a marriage that can work and a a successful trajectory in my occupation. This morning, this afternoon, I'm calling every single person listening to me here today to a God-covenanted partnership in choosing, whether it's with spouse or children or household or whatever, fast from digital media. I'm not telling you how to do it. You have to use your phones. I'm not saying quit using them. But do you have to spend that much time on some of the things you're spending, are you neglecting the chance to know a deeper, more beautiful understanding, not only of Christ, but of the people you're going to heaven with? And is there any merit in a tightening of the team as the societal checkmate deepens? It's coming. Don't be afraid. Resist him. Yes, be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, goes about with the spirit of this world like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But you know what? Before he gets to the roaring lion stage in America, he's going to use the snake in the grass stage. And that's what he's been using. So take your devices and make yourself accountable. I've had people listen to these messages and on the way out of church have some pretty painful conversations with their spouses. the spirit of truth. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And the truth, when it comes to someone who loves you in the grace of Christ, has the power to set you free. This church, this village church, along with this Seventh-day Adventist church, is called to the highest caliber of honest Adventism that we've ever been called to. And the truth is not the truth because somebody said it. It's the truth because it's the spirit of truth born out in the Word. So I want to say thank you to that person who spent two hours with me this week. We sharpened a little iron in the meeting because I didn't come to my opinions and my convictions casually. None of them. And I'm not leaving my convictions casually. None of them. But I don't believe I'm the only possessor of truth. And I believe that if my wife says it, I should listen. And if my friend says it, I should listen. And if a church member says it, I should listen. And if somebody in the elevator going up and down in my hotel room says something true, I should listen. But I have to have the spirit of truth. And I'm not attaching myself to any ideology that can wound the respectability of my Christian witness. None. So, by January 31, which is next Sabbath, 
I'm asking you to have made a covenant with God about how you relate to your digital devices. Share it with somebody else for whatever length of time or whatever modus operandi it's to engage. And don't just take the time you free up, whether it's less time searching your portfolio or less time searching your genes or less time searching your circle of friends. Don't just take the time and spend it somewhere else. Covenant to go back to some old school technology, including the writings of Ellen White, and read yourself a chapter or two out of something like Great Controversy and see a little bit of hope and sobriety doesn't reshape our Christian experience. God loves you. I love you. I care about you. And I'm calling you today to be Adventist after the Adventist sort of way born out in history through the honesty of postmasters and ordinary people who would listen, pray, and be open to change. May God help us. May we let Jesus have full control and teach us just how to do it. For indeed, he will lead his sheep. He will teach us how. If we will be humble and sincere, amen and amen. Him, number 308, Holy Thine.
Thank you for Jesus who can save us from societal checkmate. That our minds would not be conformed to this world, but they be renewed through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Forgive us, Lord, when we have willingly allowed the mind-bending influence of a studied stalking of our interests and our pleasures to continue drawing us deeper into situations in which no one will be a speed bump or an accountability dynamic. But you gave us families for this, Lord. You gave us church families, and you gave us divine worship hours, just like this one. So I'm praying, Lord, that in humility and sincerity, we could stop and sense that the pharisaical dynamics which we loathe are methods which have yet been tried again and again and are working upon us now to confirm bias when the spirit of truth challenges. So Lord, confirm what is true, unsettle what is false in our personal private lives. And then when it comes to orthodoxy and what we actually believe as a church, it will have power. So now, Lord, set us free. Forgive us when we've wasted time and given access to the hearts and minds of our home, even our children. And now I pray, Lord, may we realize that from the snake we'll go to the lion. And the time of resistance is now. A resistance in the Word, and it is written. A resistance in the right spirit. And I'm praying, Father, Contend with those who contend with me. Save your children. Save my children and save this child, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated.